Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm your host, Lindsay Jackson. With rates of interfaith... Welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm your host, Lindsay Jackson. With rates of interfaith marriage steadily increasing since the middle of the 20th century, interfaith families have become a permanent and significant feature of the religious landscape in America. In her recent book, Beyond Chrismica, The Christian-Jewish Interfaith Family in the United States, Samira Mehta examines how interfaith families negotiate and blend their religious traditions within a single family unit. Meta also examines how cultural, ethnic, and racial diversity impact the religious praxis of interfaith families. Samira Meta is Assistant Professor of Religious Studies at Albright College. I am pleased to welcome her to MBIR. Hello and welcome. Hello. Tell us about your interest in this topic. How did you come to be interested in interfaith families in the United States and why in the contemporary period? Well, I think there are two things that really caused me to come up with this project in the first place, which is a little bit different, really, from why I then think it's an important and interesting project, having spent almost a decade thinking about it. Um, I went to graduate school really intending to work on colonial New England, and I had a professor in divinity school who I just found deeply inspirational, and I thought, that the Puritans were where it was at for me. And after leaving HDS and and getting to Emory, I, I started to talk to a number of scholars, both faculty and other, other graduate students, who were really working on the contemporary period or on recent history. And <clears throat> I came to really feel that it was important to me to do work that was relevant, directly relevant to the world in which I was living. And I love and have deep respect for historical work focusing on earlier periods. But I came to realize that for me, I wanted to be able to see connections um, and the potential for change in the world that I was living in. I wanted to do research that um, ministers, rabbis, priests, contemporary laity would be able to read and maybe do things using that research. And of course, there is that possibility with more historical work. But I think it takes a lot more work to help people make those connections. And so I realized that I wanted a more contemporary or recent historical project I also realized that methodologically, I wanted to become trained in both historical method and in ethnographic method. And so I wanted for that first project that would be done under supervision to be trained in both of those methods. And so hence a contemporary project. This specific contemporary project came about because I went out to lunch with a classmate of mine who was a student priest at a neighboring church. 
And we were just going out to lunch, right? We, we enjoyed each other's company. He's a nice guy. He's now uh, the director of a nonprofit called Kids for Peace that works on peace in the Middle East. And um, he told me a story about how he had had a student come to him for basically one-on-one tutoring for confirmation in the Episcopal Church. And he agreed to do the one-on-one tutoring. And in the first session with the student, without the student's parents, the teener, the teenager asked him whether or not the confirmation class was going to be as much work as his bar mitzvah. And basically, the student was super upfront. He was like, look, they threw this gigantic party for my bar mitzvah. They've said that there isn't a gigantic party for confirmation. And also, I've already had my gigantic party. And so, like, you're not going to make me learn another language or anything, are you? <laughs> and my friend was thinking about this. And he, he he realized that he had so many questions, right? And some of them were logistical, like... He and his supervisor have lunch with this rabbi once a month at the clergy group for the, the like the neighborhood, right? This is the Episcopal Church and the conservative synagogue are in the same part of the city. They're in a clergy monthly lunch group together. What on earth is the rabbi going to say if he finds out that they've confirmed this kid? And especially what is he going to say if they find out that they confirmed the kid knowing that the kid had had a bar mitzvah, right? So there are like inter religious dynamics around this question. But there are also questions like, what does the family think that they're doing, right? What did the bar mitzvah mean to them? What does confirmation mean to them? Why do they want this child sort of officially minted in two different religions that make different truth claims and like have remarkably similar stances to how people should live and be in the world in terms of what it means to be a good person living in, you know, a contemporary American city. But, uh, uh, you know, what it means to be a good in both cases, in both communities, largely upper middle class American, right? They don't have different social justice messages. They don't have different community engagement messages. They're both congregations that are, you know, they're not on fire with liberal activism, much in many ways to my friend, the student priest's disappointment. Um, but they're not, they're not really socially different, but they do make very different theological claims, right? About chosenness and peoplehood on the part of the Jews, about you know, the resurrection and the Trinity on the part of the Episcopalians, they have, what, what, what does the family think these ceremonies are doing? And then also he had questions for himself as a priest in formation about what it would mean to prepare a student for a rite if the student did not think that they were renouncing something else, right? Like theologically, what would that mean in an Episcopalian context? And he went to do research and he discovered that there was no work available at the time that really talked about why a family would want to make the kind of choice that they were making, how they would imagine religious identity, what what it meant for the family. Okay, so I let's talk a little bit about terminology. Um, yes. At the beginning of your book, you explain um, sort of the proper and improper um, ways of referring to um, the union of two people from different religious traditions, which is most commonly referred to as interfaith families or interfaith marriage. Um, can you explain why you chose 
to use the term interfaith um, throughout the majority of your book and the limitations of this term. Absolutely. So one of the standard terms is intermarried. That is a term that really comes out of or is very prevalent in Jewish literature, demographic, sociological, but also prescriptive literature, um, are intermarried people. That replaced the term mixed marriages. So at some point, the, um, the reform movement decides that intermarried is a more polite term than mixed marriages. Um, and then at some point, interfaith marriage becomes a term that many of the people in those marriages find more comfortable. So it is the term that most outreach organizations are likely to use. Um, It's seen as being both more specific, right? Intermarriage between what kinds of demographic groups, right? Like, did my, my parents have an intermarriage because they were from different ethnic groups, right? Like my mom is a white Midwestern citizen of the United States. And my father was, when they got married, a South Asian non-citizen of the United States. By the time I was born, that wasn't true anymore. He was still South Asian, but he was a U.S. citizen. But, you know, like, was that a mixed marriage because of their different um, ethnicities, because of their different nationalities? Or was it an intermarriage because they had different religions, right? That's a... So there's an imprecision in the term, but also interfaith families came to feel that the term intermarried, even though it was intended as a sort of gracious outreach term, was pathologizing. There was a lot of talk about refusing to perform intermarriages if you were a rabbi, but then making the intermarried couple understand that you still wanted them to join your synagogue. Right. So we can't marry you according to Jewish law. We cannot give you the covenant of Jewish marriage um, or on the part of the Catholic Church. We cannot offer you the sacrament of marriage, but we still want your intermarried families in our communities. And so at the same time that these religious leaders were thinking of it as a polite term, they weren't offering interfaith families what they wanted. And when there were conversations about the intermarried as a problem, um, it became a pathologizing term. And so the families themselves tended to prefer interfaith marriage. Now, it has limitations. In the introduction to my book, I also talk about a couple who I referred to them as an interfaith couple. And the woman, the wife in the couple, um, and I was looking primarily at heterosexual families. I have some interesting information on same-sex couples that I just didn't quite demographically have enough to to work with for the book, um, or rather didn't have enough in the way of the cultural studies stuff. But um, the the wife in this particular couple said, no, we are not an interfaith family. We are an interreligious family. I come from Judaism. He comes from the Missouri Synod. But together we found a shared faith. We are Unitarian Universalist. We have different religions. We have different religious traditions. We have different religious rituals. But we have the same shared faith. It is Unitarian Universalism. So for her, it wasn't a good term. But um, 
and you know, the other problem is that faith is a term that is more resonant in a lot of ways, probably for Christian families, for people coming out of Christianity than it is for people coming out of Judaism. Faith is a term that we equate with belief in a lot of ways. And, you know, I don't want to underscore the sort of stereotype of Christianity is about belief and not practice and Judaism is about practice and not belief, because I don't think that's true. But I do think that the kind of concept of a robust faith life has less resonance for many, many, many American Jews, right? So it is in this interesting way, sort of a Christian biased term. And that's probably also true if you think beyond the Christian Jewish model, right? There are going to be groups for whom the term faith works better and groups for whom it works less well. Does it really make sense to describe a, I don't know, Roman Catholic Buddhist inner faith couple as interfaith, right? Like is Buddhism a faith or is it a philosophy? How do you want to think about it? Um, So it has limits in those ways, but it is the term that the majority of the Christian Jewish couples that I talked to preferred. Um, It was the term that most of their children found most comfortable. And so for the very specific population that I was working with, it was the term that most people wanted. And in addition, it's the term that is the most Googleable. So from the standpoint <laughs> of me, looking for a book that I really wanted rabbis and ministers and priests to find it, when in the position of my my friend, the student priest, like interfaith is the, the search term that they're most likely to use in this moment. Um, it is the search term... It is the term that is going to resonate the most if I want people to read my book and get the message out. And because I decided to do a more contemporary project was because I wanted to speak to people and provide information, you know, descriptive, far more than sort of prescriptive, but information about the world that we're living in. I wanted it to be accessible and findable. Right, right. Um, Your answer here has provided a perfect segue to my next question. Um, You've mentioned a few times in in your previous answer um, that you've you've focused on um, the interfaith relations between Jews and Christians, primarily in your your text. So can you explain why you chose to focus on um, interfaith marriage in the context of Judaism and Christianity specifically? Absolutely. Um, And it was interesting. I had a couple of um, sort of early mentors who were really advising me because I am half South Asian to look at like to look at South Asian white marriages, right. Or something like that. And to think about like Hindu Christian marriages or Hindu Jewish marriages or something like that. And I really didn't want to, um, And I had personal reasons for not wanting to, but I also had intellectual reasons related to my identity as a scholar of American religions. And notice that I really think that the Jewish-Christian interfaith marriage is the archetypal interfaith marriage of the 20th century in the United States. Um, 
maybe a little bit if you're thinking about the first half of the 20th century, the Protestant Catholic marriage gets a lot of play. And I don't want to downplay challenges of um, Protestant Catholic marriages, particularly for people of sort of deep faith rather than for people who have um, sort of lapsed Catholic post-Protestant identities, right? I don't want to downplay that, but I think that in the American imagination, the archetype is the Christian Jewish interfaith family. So if you think about television, there was, or before television, there was a play called Abe's Irish Rose. Abe is Jewish, uh, Rose is Irish Catholic. It's the story of them falling in love and their parents' reactions. And it's from the 1920s. It was, it ran on Broadway for just an extraordinarily long run. It um, got turned into an early, I believe, talkie, although... I'm in my imagination superimposing subtitles. And so now I'm wondering if actually I was like hallucinating voices as I was watching it. Um, have added, like, which did I add in in my memory, right? The soundtrack or the, the subtitles. But um, th there was an early movie version of AB's Irish Rose. There was a lawsuit because somebody else made a series of, of shorts called The Kellys and the Coens also about a Jewish Catholic couple and their parents. And in all of these films from the first half of the 20th century, it's a, it's a story of a problem of immigration, right? Like you've got the Jews and the Jews are weird and they're from another world and you've got the Irish and the Irish are weird and they're from another world. And like, you know, they're too Jewish and they're too Catholic with their like, I don't know, to fill in and, yarmulkes and you know rosaries and refusal to eat ham on Fridays right like they're just a problem and the couple the second generation the child generation with their marriage assimilate into sort of a secular but really Protestant American mode of being right all of a sudden everybody's willing to eat ham on Fridays um, which I just thought of as a joke. By the way. <laughs> that occurred to me, did not occur to me while I'm writing, and now I'm sad. Um, uh, um, anyway, so like, so starting in the 1910s and 1920s, the Jewish Christian marriage, in this case, both in terms of immigrants, um, becomes an archetype. But you also, but you see, moving through the 20th century, right? You get some of the first depictions of Jews on network television. There's a television show in the early seventies called Bridget loves Bernie and it runs for one season and it's a 1970s remake of AB's Irish Rose. And it's interesting because the, there is a Catholic Bridget is Catholic is Irish Catholic, but all of the stereotypes in play in her family um, are really Camelot Catholics. Like they're actually portrayed as upper class Christians. I think that the reason that they're Catholic instead of Episcopalian is for the sight gag of, um, of um, priests and nuns in the family, right? But they're not swilling whiskey, they're swilling martinis. And they are on the board of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. They're Upper East Side, wealthy, New York, status people. Um, 
But anyway, again, here it is. It's the uh, highest ranking television show ever to be canceled by a major network. And while CBS denies that it canceled it because of um, objections from the Jewish community, the Jewish, um, the Jewish community and really a stunning cross-section of the Jewish community. They got complaints from reform to Orthodox clergy, random like Jewish people wrote into the New York times. Someone wrote into the New York times comparing um, this sitcom about an interfaith couple to a, a merry little comedy about a family on the way to the gas chambers, like explicitly saying that interfaith marriage was going to cause the extermination of the Jews, not in a way dissimilar to the Holocaust. Like, oh my goodness, the upset about this television show. And the hype and the and the genocidal comparisons, right? This is not to be taken lightly how upsetting this was for people. But also Rhoda, Mary Tyler, uh, Mary Richards, Jewish friend from the Mary Tyler Moore show, when she gets a spinoff, she marries in her spinoff a Catholic. Um, and there's an interfaith marriage between Nellie Olson and Percival Dalton on Little House on the Prairie. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret, is the child of an interfaith marriage. All of those um, sort of moments, and some of them are moments that people are really aware of as interfaith marriage, like Bridget Loves Bernie. And nobody remembers that Margaret is the child of an interfaith marriage, right? They all remember we must, we must increase our bust. Um, but she is. And so here it is. It's so prevalent in the sort of psyche and it keeps going. Um, the television show Mad About You, which also ran for a really long time and which in the end I didn't write about is about, probably an interfaith marriage. No one ever comes out and says that, but everyone is culturally marked, right? Um, the nanny is ultimately an interfaith marriage. But even before the nanny and the father get married, it's about, it's an interfaith marriage. You get articles in the newspaper every single year, some newspaper starting in the late 70s, does a piece on the December dilemma. Should you celebrate great both Christmas and Hanukkah or not? Um, and sometimes saying yes and sometimes saying no and interviewing families that make different choices. It becomes this huge preoccupation. And so that's why Christian Jewish, it's not that there aren't like occasional really good pieces of pop culture about other kinds of interfaith marriage. Uh, Mississippi Masala comes to mind as a movie from the 1980s about a South Asian African American couple, but they don't have the same cultural sway. They're, they don't take the same sort of dominant piece. And I think therefore set the terms for the conversation, right? When we think about what counts as a religion and what counts as a culture, we are thinking about the way that Christianity and Judaism in varying forms, right? There are lots of kinds of Christianity and there are in fact, lots of kinds of Judaism have policed those boundaries. And we then try with varying levels of success to write what Hindu Buddhist marriages in Yonkers look like onto that cultural script. So before you were speaking about um, 
sort of reactions to and preoccupations with intermarriage, um, well, specifically with regards to pop cultural depictions of intermarriage um, or interfaith marriage. Um, but I want to shift um, our conversation a little bit to talking about the reactions of religious leaders to this phenomenon. Um, you begin your book by examining the policies of the Central Conference of American Rabbis, the Catholic Church, and the attitudes of Protestants vis-a-vis uh, -vis interfaith marriage in the 1970s. Um, can you explain what the reactions of these three traditions were towards um, interfaith marriage at this particular historical moment and whether these um, or how these initial reactions changed over time? Sure. So what I would say is that all three groups were pretty nervous about interfaith marriage. So all three kind of communities were anxious about interfaith marriage, but they reacted in very different ways. Um, for the Catholic Church, the concern really was, in a lot of ways, about the sacramental nature of marriage. So um, the sacrament of marriage, it's not that the church would not perform marriages between Catholics and non-Catholics if they promised to raise the children as Catholics, but it wasn't, it didn't hold the same sacramental weight and quality. Um, and so... They strongly discouraged interfaith marriage. They, um, you know, it would mean that your marriage was not a sacrament. It, de it decreased the holiness of the union. They had a lot of anxiety about, um, particularly before Vatican II and in a slightly earlier period that I'm writing about, a lot of anxiety about marriage to Protestants. So, for instance during a period when Catholics couldn't eat meat on Fridays, right? So before Vatican II, if you're a Catholic woman married to a Protestant man, will he agree to not eat meat on Fridays or are you going to have to cook meat for him on Fridays? And if you have to cook meat for him on Fridays, is he going to force you to feed the meat to the children, right? Like, is he going to be respectful of that um, prohibition, or is he, as the paterfamilias, going to demand a particular, like a roast or something, and demand that the children eat it? Um, if you are a Catholic man married to a Protestant woman, will she abstain from cooking meat on Friday? Or are you going to come home and realize that there is like a roast chicken on the table, right? So they have concerns like that. Um, the church also has concerns about marriage to Jews, but they don't have a lot of tension with Jewish authorities about it. Um, there is some tension with Protestant authorities, and I'll get to that in a moment. Um, the Jewish response is, do not do it. Do not marry Christians. Do not marry Christians because you will cease to be Jewish. You will join the dominant American culture. It will be hard to stay Jewish from a uh, from the standpoint of Jewish law. If the man is Jewish and the woman is Christian or anything else that is not Jewish, but in this conversation in the mid-20th century, nobody's really imagining, you know, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, Zoroastrian spouses. They're imagining Christian spouses. If the mother of the children is Christian, then the children are, according to Jewish law, they're not Jewish. Either she needs to convert or the children need to be converted. And on top of that, there's anxiety that, like, will she maintain an appropriately Jewish home, right? Will she keep kosher? 
Will she make a dinner, make a Sabbath dinner? Will she insist on having a Christmas tree or, you know, making an Easter dinner? Will she do the driving required for Hebrew school? There's really this sense that the mother will shape and influence the children's religion, both halakhically, so according to Jewish law, and sociologically, the woman is the person who's going to raise the kids. And so either she won't raise the children Jewish or she'll raise the children Jewish, but she'll resent it so much that the children will not end up with positive feelings towards Judaism and the family will cease to be Jewish and they will, and that will be long-term a disaster for American Jews. And it's important to remember that like, A, Jews are a tiny percentage of the American population. It really would be possible in some ways for them to assimilate out of being. Um, But also this is the mid 20th century. This is immediately after the Holocaust. And so there's a lot of anxiety about Jewish numbers. Internal Jewish conversations are talking about the importance of having large Jewish families to replace everybody who died in the Holocaust. And so, so like, there's a huge amount of anxiety about what this means, both for like, will an individual's family stay Jewish? And like, you know, on the part of grandparents, will I not have this minority experience and this tradition that I love in common with my grandchildren, but also like sort of demographically, there's panic about this. And then there are the Protestants. The Protestants are not worried about numbers and they're not worried about control because it's the mid 20th century. And this is like the height of the Protestant mainline's power and influence and awareness of its power and influence in some ways in American culture. Right. So the Protestant position is really interesting because it's very different in regards to Catholics than it is in regards to Jews. So the Protestants have two concerns with interfaith marriage. The first is that they really do think that it will be bad and confusing for children to have more than one religion. And so they do think that a family should have one religion in the home. The other concern for Protestants is that they are concerned that um, about the divorce rate. The divorce rate is, for a variety of reasons, starting to creep up, and it will really start to rise in the 1970s and 80s. There are lots of reasons for the divorce rate to go up Um, as women have increased independence, right? And more skills, it's easier for them to leave bad marriages. So that's part of it. Um, Another part of it, Stephanie Kuntz's work points out that the um, average length of marriage is actually remarkably static. It's just that before penicillin, people used to get out of their marriages by dying. Um, And I'm being a little bit facetious there. But um, a high, you know, as as lifespan gets longer, right, you have to sustain a marriage, sustaining a marriage until death do us part is more daunting when you're going to be alive for 50 years instead of when you were going to be alive, when someone was going to die in childbirth, right? Like, just realistically, it's a harder thing to do. And so Protestants are super anxious about the health of the family and about divorce rate. And also the standards for what marriage should look like are getting better. If you look at Rebecca Davis's really excellent work, you see that um, there's a lot of anxiety about 
figuring out how to keep marriages loving and fulfilling, right? As these, as that becomes part of what people want from their marriages rather than a workable economic bargain. Um, so the other thing that happens, right, is you're married, you're supposed to be married to your best friend and lover rather than somebody with whom you've got like a pretty good working relationship. And so clergy are like, what do you do with people who don't want to stay married when the magic dies, when everybody is aware that at some point the magic is going to at the very least get a little bit less glittery, right? And so there's a lot of Protestant anxiety about the health of marriage. And there's concern that interfaith marriage will make marriages harder. Um, that interfaith marriages are more likely to lead to divorce. They don't have a lot of um, data to support that in that moment, but they're certainly worried about it. And I'm also happy to talk about like sort of what we do or don't know about whether or not interfaith marriage leads to divorce. Um, but, um, but anyway, so that's the Protestant concern. However, the Protestants are many, many mainline Protestants, and especially if you're thinking about people like Unitarians as part of the Protestant fold, um, will perform interfaith marriages. They will marry Jews to Protestants, and they will marry Jews to Catholics. This annoys or concerns both rabbis and priests, right? Um, they will, however, then counsel the parents to raise the kid in one religion. And here's where we run into a problem, or here's where Protestant attitudes towards Jews are different than Protestant attitudes towards Catholics. In many reasons, and one of them is quite frankly, post-Holocaust guilt. We are talking about liberal Protestants, right? And so liberal Protestants in between World Wars I and II were a major force of isolationism in the United States. World War I had, you know, not been the war to end all wars. It had been so horrible. And so many liberal Protestants had been extremely reluctant to get involved in a war that they hoped would stay Europe's war. So after the war, um, as, in from, as, as they learn more and more about the Holocaust and realize more and more what they were and were not choosing to know about the Holocaust, you know, during the 1930s and 40s um, and how they were and were not choosing to act, there's a lot of um, essentially guilt and also a lot of sympathy regardless of whether or not there's guilt for the Jewish situation. And so these are liberal Protestants. They are not thinking that without, you know, belief in Jesus, you're going straight to hell, right? They're not thinking that being Jewish is inherently less good. I mean, they may or may not want Jews in their country clubs, but like they don't think you're going to hell, right? Um, and so they will say you should raise the kid in one religion and that one religion should be Judaism. They are, however, and they are not offended when rabbis also say you should raise your children in one religion and it should be Judaism because they're both sympathetic to the Jewish numbers game. And they're not offended when Jews say, you know, Methodists, lovely people, but not Jews, right? Protestants do not have the same numbers game sympathy for Catholics. And 
even if you were to look past some of the like the, the long history of anti-Catholicism and just also tensions between Protestants and Catholics, they are in a moment of doing a lot of ecumenical work, right, with both Jews and Catholics in the 1960s. And this is a place where the Protestants really feel that the Catholics are falling down on ecumenicism because the Catholics are saying you have to raise your kids Catholic in order to have a wedding in the Catholic church. And the Protestants are offended. They're not offended when Jews say, you know, Methodists aren't um, Jewish. But what what they hear is not the Catholic church saying Presbyterians aren't Catholic, but rather Presbyterians aren't Christian, or at least they are not as good as Christians. And so this creates a tension between Protestants and Catholics on this issue of interfaith marriage. Um, And there's a lot of sort of posturing about this in places like the Christian century, which is, in all fairness, like what I chose to use as my thermometer for Protestant mainline opinions. I didn't go into all of the archives of all of the churches. I just said, like, you know, what's the Christian century saying here? And that was largely what they were saying. They were largely sympathetic to the Jewish position and pretty upset with the Catholic position, but willing to perform the marriages. And they were not fighting to have people raise their children Protestant instead of Jewish, but they were fighting to have people raise their children Protestant instead of Catholic. Um, for a wide array of reasons, some of which have to do with theological differences, real or perceived, between Protestants and Catholics, and some of it having to do with the politics of how ecumenicism was playing out in that moment, and some of it having to do with anti-Catholicism. I think we should talk briefly about Chrismica, since it's in the title of your book. Um, Well, first of all, can you maybe elaborate really quickly on the genesis of this blended holiday and how it sort of became sort of the quintessential sort of interfaith holiday between Jews and Christians? So I think that it's important to say that a lot of the people that I worked with who do both are really pretty offended by the concept of Chrismica. Um, And so I don't want to say that nobody celebrates Chrismica because I think that absolutely there are people who are like super secular, um, post-Christian, post-Jewish people who like basically they're like the holiday is super fun. Um, The term really came up for the first time in some ways on the OC, the television show, the OC, in 2004. And it was a Time Magazine word of the year in 2004. Um, so I guess maybe it was on the OC in 2003 and became a time word of the year for the next year in 2004. Um, I'd have to go back and look at the book to give you those dates, but, um, and in this, you know, sort of, is it a sitcom? Is it a drama? I guess it's a drama, but, um, television show, the main character is like, we have eight days of presents and then one day of lots of presents on which we also rent a movie and get Chinese food because of course Jews sort of famously a Jewish tradition is Chinese and a movie on Christmas day. Um, and of course, like any other tradition, there are lots of people who do that and lots of people who don't. Um, but that's sort of where the 
media idea of Chrismica and the cultural prominence of Chrismica came from. Shortly thereafter, a man named Ron Gompertz wrote a book and created a website about Chrismica. Um, and he's got lots of recipes in his book and like special foods. So he's got like a gingerbread house made out of matzah, even though matzah has nothing to do with Hanukkah. Um, he has a, an iced tea called passion of the iced again, as if the passion of the Christ were a Christmas thing and not an Easter thing, but also without a lot of thought to the fact that, um, Holy week was a time of massive, violent anti-Semitism throughout European history. So it's this really interesting, like it's very funny, um, and maybe part of why it's very funny is how edgy it is, right? Like, but it's not, and, and Ron Gompertz is the Jewish half of his marriage, but it's this interesting thing where like, if you're Christian, Holy Week is an extremely important, you know, is theologically in many ways a more important holiday than Christmas. And if you're Jewish, Holy Week is the t a time of massive anti-Semitism, historically speaking. And so, you know, so it's a little bit, so it's, it's sort of an odd cultural product in a lot of ways. But it's really, his, his argument is, look, I'm not Jewish, except ethnically, like I'm very much ethnically Jewish. There's a lot about being Jewish that I think is fun, but I'm an atheist and I don't go to synagogue and the religion is not my bag and my wife loves a lot of things about Christmas. She loves the trees. She loves the food. She doesn't believe in Jesus or God and doesn't have a lot of patience with a lot of the politics that she associates with Christianity, fairly or unfairly. Um, there are, of course, many, many liberal Christians who are in favor of gay rights and, you know, birth control and a women, woman's right to choose and things like that. But, you know, she associates political conservatism with Christianity and she doesn't want anything to do with it. So, but why should those traditions get to say we can't throw our fun midwinter holidays? And if we're going to throw both of them, why not throw them together and be fun and be ironic about it and create crazy juxtapositions? And that's his attitude. And obviously you can tell in what I'm saying that I think that there are some problematic things about what he's done. Um, there are some things that I think are culturally insensitive and I say that very aware that cultural insensitivity is actually part of how comedy works, but there's that, that kind of thing. And I think that there are people who do that, right? Like there are people who celebrate Hanukkah and do Hanukkah presents and celebrate Christmas and do Christmas presents and sort of dissociate both of them from their religious traditions. And if they happen at the same time, do them at the same time and have fun with some of the juxtapositions that certainly, certainly happens. You can tell that there, that happens because there's a market for Christmas cards of Santa Claus lighting a menorah, right? Like obviously it happens, but for a lot of the people who I talked to who wanted to talk to me specifically because they put a lot of time and energy and thought into how they are going to conduct themselves as people coming from two faith traditions or from two religious traditions. Here, I will go with that person who was like, we are not interfaith, we are interreligious. Coming from two different traditions that they are thinking of as either religiously very important or culturally very important. And please do ask me 
in the next question about religion and culture as terms, because I don't want to imply for a minute that I think that they're static terms. But people are holding these traditions up as important to them, and they're playing up theological aspects or spiritual aspects or ethical aspects or familial aspects or relational aspects or um, ethno-cultural aspects. And they're really trying to hold them together and hold them in tension in meaningful and productive ways. They don't like the idea of Chrismica because what they say is we try to take these traditions on their own. Yes, we absolutely look for things in common between them and ways that they can fit together well in our lives, but we're not trying to create mashups. We're trying to respect them as distinct things that are complementary, but not the same. And we want them to be fun, but we also think they're serious, right? Like nobody's objecting necessarily to the Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Christmas special, but they're saying, you know, we don't want that to overshadow the fact that whether or not you believe in Jesus Christ as the actual savior, this is a story about a baby who was born and transformed the world in ways that if you listen to the baby's message and ethics, I mean, not as a baby, but as a grown-up who can talk, um, are powerful and largely like very good like whatever christianity then when didn't jesus with jesus's message right some of which is spectacular and some of which is horrific this is about an amazing teacher one person whose message and then whose followers transformed the world whatever you think about like the particularities of Jewish boundary policing and chosenness and how Jews have been known to treat interfaith families or, you know, whatever you think about people who practice Judaism differently than you do and whether you think assimilation is all for the good or whether you think assimilation is terrible, like on some level and whether you think Hanukkah should be a major holiday because that is how it is kind of cast in the American landscape, or whether it's really important to you that in a Jewish ritual sense, Hanukkah is an extremely minor holiday, right? Whatever you think about those things, Hanukkah is a story about a group of people preserving their traditions in the face of adversity. And that's really amazing. And for interfaith families, like that's part of what they're trying to do. They're trying to preserve their traditions. They're just aware that they have more than one set, right? And so they're not trying to merge those things. They're trying to say there are messages inherent in each of these holidays that are really important for who we want to be in the world. Not every single bit of the messages are. But in saying that, they're not actually different than other Christians and other Jews, right? Like, it's very rare if, you know, go up and poll a random Catholic on the street about whether or not they use or their Catholic loved ones use birth control, right? Go up and poll a random Jew about whether or not they eat bacon, right? When they, when they pick and choose from their traditions in order to create something cohesive, that's something that all other religious people are doing as well. Or all other people who are relating and living in traditions are doing as well might be a better way of saying it. Um, excellent. So we're reaching, we're approaching our end time. So but before I ask you my last question, I'll ask you the question that you 
mentioned that you wanted me to ask about religion and culture and what you mean by these two terms and um, if you can elaborate. So I think that what is very important to understand is that religion and culture are strategic terms. I do not ever want to imply that there is something out there called religion that we can really point to and identify and say, this thing right here is religion and it is always religious, this practice or that practice, or this is cultural. But I think that amongst the people that I study, they frequently use terms like religion and culture to signal what they do and don't want to be possible with their traditions. And so the example that I tend to use, and part of why I put Chrismica in the title, is the example of the Christmas tree. There are people who want to say, the Christmas tree is a religious symbol, right? Like, this is the symbol of Christmas, a religious holiday. And you cannot have a Christmas tree in a Jewish home because it is an element of Christian religion. There are other people who want to say, actually, the Christmas tree has nothing to do with the baby Jesus. It is a cultural thing. It is not a religious thing. And therefore, there's no reason that a Jewish home could not have a Christmas tree in it in the same way that, you know, if the person who wanted the Christmas tree is also Italian and therefore wants lasagna, you can have lasagna in your uh, Jewish home, right? Like, eating lasagna does not make you less of a Jew. Eating, having a Christmas tree is a cultural thing. It doesn't make you Christian. Um, and so that's the same piece of material culture being coded for one strategic purpose, eliminating it as religious and in another, including it as cultural, right? But even more importantly, as people are doing that, they're not necessarily doing it consistently. And what I mean there is in the arguments for excluding the Christmas tree, Part of the rationale for excluding the Christmas tree is that it is a religious symbol, right? Like, we can't have it here. It's a religious symbol. It doesn't belong in a Jewish home. Um, but it would be perfectly acceptable to, I don't know, make a, um, make a dairy meal that was entirely made out of, like, vegetarian Italian food, right? That would be okay, but the Christmas tree is not. Um, but... At the same time, the same argument is, but it's okay to ask the Christian person to give it up because it isn't actually central to Christian faith. Like what it is to be a Christian is to live out your baptismal covenant and your baptismal covenant does not in point of fact have anything to do with, um, with having a Christmas tree. It has to do with being a good follower of Christ. The Christmas tree is a cultural addition. And so we're not asking you to give anything important about your religion when we ask you to give up your tree. Does that make sense? Oh, so yeah, absolutely. It's coded in two different ways. Now, I would add to that, implicit in that particular strategic use, is the idea that religion is somehow more important than culture, right? Like, we would never ask you to give up your baptismal covenant that you are keeping privately in your own heart. But it's fine to ask you to give up your culture because culture is not, in the end, as important as religion, which is also sort of an interesting idea, right? Like, and not necessarily empirically demonstrable. And so that's really what I mean. What I mean is that there's a lot of temptation 
to take specific things in interfaith family life and say like, this is religious and th this is cultural. And when people do that, they're often boundary policing about what can and can't be combined. But even the very same people will flip what practices and what objects of material culture are labeled in each category, depending very specifically on what they're trying to do. And those arguments almost always also serve to devalue the importance of culture to people in favor of seeing religion as more important. Um, which I, again, continue to find sort of to be a deeply interesting approach. Yeah. Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Or, well, I mean, and by interesting in a lot of ways, what I mean is problematic. But, um, but what I really want you to pull out of what I'm saying is that I, I want, I'm interested in studying how people use those terms and how their meanings shift strategically. Um, wonderful. Thank you. Um, so we've reached um, the end of the interview and we've taken up a lot of um, your time today. So thank you so much for spending some time with us um, and talking about your book. But I do have one final question for you. Um, okay. Can you share with us what you're working on next? Are you still looking at interfaith families in the United States in some capacity or are you looking at something different? Well, so a little bit of both. And I am hoping this summer to finish what will probably be the last um, interview or the last article to come out of this project. I have sort of two articles of material that didn't make it into the book and I would like to get at least one of them written and out the door. Um, the article that I'm currently working on finishing up this summer is about interfaith families in which um, the in which Judaism is being combined with Asian religion, either Hinduism or Buddhism or sort of um, Confucius tradi Confucian tradition, and making an argument about how um, how those boundary how that boundary policing looks different than it does in Jewish Christian combinations. Um, and so I'm hoping to get that out the door this summer. But the main thing that I'm doing right now is shifting to a different project that also thinks about religion and rhetoric around the shaping of families, religion and political rhetoric. A lot of what my, a lot of what the Interfaith Family Book looked at was the role of multiculturalism in creating those categories of religion and culture and how we use them and what possibilities they open up. And so I was thinking a lot about how cultural rhetoric around pluralism changes the possibilities for families. And I started thinking about other kinds of cultural rhetoric in family life. And simultaneously, every time you open the newspaper, some sort of horrible um, initiative has rolled back women's access to basic health care in the United States. And so I am working on a project called God Bless the Pill. And it is a history of contraception and how contraception intersects with political rhetoric and religious rhetoric about the family from the end of the Second World War to the present. 
Wow, those sound like really fascinating projects. That's uh, we're, we would be excited to read them for sure. It sounds really interesting. I would be excited to write it. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Well, this huge archival, like you know, I've got like five thousand PDFs or something. Oh, I, I can't even imagine. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us um, about your research, the book Beyond Chrismica, the Christian Jewish Family in the United States, published by the University of North Carolina Press, is out now and is an absolutely fascinating read, and I highly recommend that um, folks buy it and read it. So thank you again, Samira. It's been, uh, it's been a really interesting conversation and great to chat with you today. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it.